Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Robin Dunbar. He's an anthropologist, evolutionary psychologist, head of the Social and Evolutionary Neuroscience Research Group at the University of Oxford, and an author. Most animals need friends to survive, but no other animal has as layered and complex a social life as humans. The last two million years, from trees to planes to apartments, has caused huge changes to the setup of our social groups, and it's a fascinating story. Expect to learn why any group size over 90 ends up with more people being killed than being born, why men don't have a best friend forever but women do, the link between human brain size and social groups, how male and female friendships differ, why the modern world has the most loneliness ever, what the single largest impact on your health is, and much more. Dunbar is such a legend, man. I, I could speak to this guy all day. He's got a beautiful affect to him, this sort of gorgeous British tone. Sat there chilling out in his house, probably drinking a large glass of white wine as he regales me with stories of human friendships over the last two million years. It's absolutely brilliant. I really, really hope that you enjoyed this one. If you do, please hit the subscribe button, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else. It really does support the show. It makes a massive difference and it makes me very happy indeed. So take five seconds and go and press it. I thank you. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Robin Dunbar. What is the social brain hypothesis for people that aren't familiar with it? The social brain hypothesis is really an explanation for why monkeys and apes have much bigger brains than anybody else uh, in the natural world and why we, if you like, as the top end of the monkeys and apes uh, family tree, have exceedingly big brains. And uh, the question is, what do we use these big brains for and the social brain hypothesis says we use it to manage our relatively large, very complicated societies. And it's that that allows us really to hold these things together uh, as a coherent village, uh, to borrow an analogy, rather than sort of scattered individuals who never talk to each other. Why wouldn't it be the case that we got bigger brains so that we could throw better or so that we could talk in more complex ways or so that we could grow cool hairstyles or do art? Uh, most of those things um, aren't that computationally demanding. Throwing is probably the most complicated of those. Uh, and it's true that we do throw better than uh, any of the other monkeys and apes, but that's really mainly because we've, our arms are freed off uh, from uh, because we don't walk on them, obviously, whereas monkeys and apes' um, arms have, are used for walking on. Um, but we're, our aiming isn't necessarily better than other species that chuck stuff out, like spitting cobras or uh, archer fish that uh, you know, spit out jets of water and, and knock insects off branches. They actually probably are more accurate than we are. No, most of these things, you know... Even walking requires some uh, computation by the brain, some calculations. But it, what seems to be really important 
for monkey snakes is the fact that they live in these very dynamic social environments in which relationships between other people are constantly changing through time. And it's being able to manage those, not just a memory problem, it's being able to manage and predict what's going to happen in these relationships and how to integrate effectively with them within a social system. Because the big problem you have is if you're too rude to everybody else, they have a nasty habit of either clobbering you or just walking away and you know going to live somewhere else with the over their shoulder comment that you can look after yourself if you're that clever. Um, so it, it, it's the skills of diplomacy as much as anything else. These are actually very sophisticated and computationally we've shown with neuroimaging experiments, brain scanning experiments, that they're much more demanding in terms of neural recruitment than, say, ordinary um, logical thinking in terms of sort of standard causality, A causes B, as it were. Um, and I think part of the problem is because what we're having to do with physical things, you know, if I, if I throw my spear in this way, will I get it to end up at that target? Um, those are things in, in, in the real world. But the, the social world, what we do is build a kind of mirror um, world in our minds, uh, peopled by avatars, which, which are based obviously on the folk out there. Um, but we're, it's, it, what we're doing is trying to, in our minds, trying to understand somebody else's mind. And, and it's, that's where it starts to get complicated because if, if I've, uh, uh, um, got to um, try and figure out what you're thinking about somebody else thinking, who in turn is thinking about somebody else elsewhere, uh, in order to uh, you know sort of decide which pub we're going to. It's something as simple <laughs> as that. <laughs> it starts to get notoriously difficult. You know, get get, get five Democrats in a room and you get five different views. Don't you? Right. So computationally. Uh, having theory of mind, modeling what other people are thinking is hard. Scaling that yeah. up beyond yourself and one person or three people or five people or 150 people becomes ever more difficult. So the, yeah. the real simulation hypothesis or the first version of the matrix is us trying to work out whether or not we're going to, I can convince everyone to go to the pub that I like to go to tomorrow. Yes. Right. That's interesting. You said there's a really great quote from your new one, uh, The Social Brain. Humans have only had to grapple with the stresses and complexities of living in large societies for less than 8,000 years. What is the evolutionary story of human social groups then? Okay. So natural human groups, if you like, the, the kind of societies we've lived in for heavens, probably the last two million years or so, are the kinds of societies we still find in hunter-gatherers all over the world. So these are what are called fish and fusion or dispersed societies where the community doesn't live all in one place. They probably own a bit of territory, if you like. Um, but the, the whole community is divided up among a, a number of much smaller camp groups. The, the sort of standard size for these communities is about 150 people the world over among these kinds of societies but the size of groups they actually live in what are sometimes called bands uh, or the living groups is perhaps a bit more appropriate for a name for them 
are typically somewhere between about 35 and 50. They're almost never bigger than 50 for one very good reason. <laughs> that is, everybody ends up killing each other, basically. Um, uh, Why? Homicide rates go through the roof. Why? Why would that be the case? Uh, it's just, well, the reason is simply the reason um, it, it that humans live in these dispersed societies in the first place and it's the reason why primate societies are as small as they actually are, if you put it in those terms. It's, it's simply the stresses of living in close proximity. And this is not just our problem. It's not a monkey and ape problem. It's a mammal-wide problem. Now, these stresses come in two ways. The, the uh, indirect version is that um, given that you're trying to get everybody to the same pub for lunch when you leave the sleeping tree. Um, uh, the difficulty for any mammal is that as they're foraging on their way, and, and especially back to the, to, to, to the chosen sleeping trees for, to spend the night in, what tends to happen is animals just get dispersed as it were over a big area and eventually they they kind of the groups fragments and animals go off on their own this is what you see right going on right before your eyes in in herding species like deer and antelope and so on um they, they break the groups break up very quickly they're coming together when they need to come together usually as protection against predators so if a predator hoves into view in the distance everybody sort of clumps tries to find the nearest um uh, other folk to 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 gather together with um, birds do the same um, see them on shore birds very nicely but you know, as they forage they kind of drift apart and especially if their activity schedules get out of synchrony which is a perennial problem if some animals are bigger than others so species that have um, dimorphic uh, um, uh, um, uh, body sizes where so females are much smaller than males uh, the females have to go to rest because they fill their stomachs long before the males do. So the males typically in these, you see it in going on in deer and antelope and the like, you know, the males will carry on feeding when the females have all gone to rest. And so the groups naturally fragment. That That's a perennial problem for all of them. And if, well, your choice is that, you know, sort of you can form casual groups or herds um, and that solves your problem. But the risk you run with that is um, that you're caught on your own uh, the one occasion in the month when a predator turns up, at which point you are lunch. Because <laughs> um, uh, basically predators don't like attacking groups. That, that's why this grouping strategy is so common among, among birds and mammals in general. Um, so the advantage of, of the, the sort of herding strategy is it's pretty costless in terms of cognition. You don't need a big brain to do it because individual relationships are basically anonymous. All you have to know is, uh, you know, am I going to, you know, if, we, if I get into 50, fisticuffs with, with this big thug, am I going to lose or not? I'm going to lose. Don't do it. <laughs> Stay away. Keep away from them. That's all you need to do. So the only permanent kind of relationships you have are between females and their offspring. And, of course, they don't last forever because once the offspring are adults, they, they effectively become anonymous members of, of the herd and, and go their own way. 
so the alternative way is to do it the way um, species like the primates uh, as a as a collective, but also some other mammals, mostly species, poor groups, the, the horse family, the elephants, the dolphins, uh, the camels, uh, especially the South American camelids. Um, they form permanent stable groups, multi-generational uh, stable groups that, that don't on the whole lose individuals um, uh, particularly easily, usually because it's quite difficult to go and join another group. So the only way they can become smaller is by breaking up into two, which is what they do. But to have these stable groups is very cognitively demanding because you need to be able to exercise the skills of diplomacy. And that seems to be cognitively very expensive, and that's why you need a big brain. But there is another cost now that kicks into place, which is actually what drives this tendency for mammals in general not to live socially. And that is the stresses incurred from bumping up against folks. So this is, you know, the sort of Los Angeles freeway problem. You're just crammed in by cars, or alternatively, you might say the, the, the New York subway uh, at Russia problem, where you're just sort of hemmed in by people uh, who are constantly bumping up against you, not necessarily maliciously or intentionally, it's just that it is crowded space and inevitably people just kind of bump into each other and so on. And those kind of stresses uh, have a terrible effect on female reproductive endocrinology. So they, they basically shut down the menstrual system and they do it very fast if, if the frequency arises. Uh, frequency of these kind of stresses uh, gets uh, up to a certain level. It will completely shut the whole system down. Um, uh, this effect is so strong in basal mammals, sort of generic, not terribly social, <clears throat> group, not permanent group living mammals, but, you know, they might live in small groups, that it actually sets an upper limit on the number of females that can live together at about five. And as far as primates are concerned, that means you can't have a group with more than about 15 individuals in it. Females are always about a third of the total group in primates. Um, so this would naturally, and at that point, you're only just breaking even, even as a female in terms of your reproductive output to replace yourself. So that's kind of uh, the best the best you can do under the circumstances if you need to live in groups. Ideally, you're much better off living in on your own as a, as a single female. I mean, you'll have as many males there, apparently, as, as you like. Um, it, because what creates the stress is that seems to be whatever females are doing to each other. Right? Didn't, so we didn't quite you know me, what's going on. Didn't you tell me that um, concealed ovulation in humans could be explained by the fact that it stops other women intrasexually competing with them by stressing them around the time of their ovulation so that it could cause exactly this disruption and maybe mean that they couldn't have kids during that cycle. Uh, this is, this is uh, one of the possible explanations, yes, for, for concealed ovulation. Um, the other is it encourages male competition for you um, because uh, um, they don't quite know whether they've um, uh, fertilized you or not. So, 
uh, if you have a free-for-all kind of mating market as you have in many uh, mammal species. So it encourages the males to stay around and, and um, that then gives the females more choice. Right? Presumably so it, also protects the infants as well. Not necessarily, no. Um, I mean, what, what actually, primarily the problem that most mammals face, indeed most birds as well, is actually predation risk. Um, or, or what comes to the same thing, but probably not quite so widespread, is, is um, ecological competitors. In other words, the folks in the next door valley, the next, next group, as it were, uh, intruding onto your, your feeding territory. But predominantly, it, it, it seems to be predation risks. And for that, it is group size. So if you look at what affects female fertility in these groups, um, it increases with the size of the group, which is what we'd expect. The group is providing the protection. Um, so the bigger the group, the higher fertility is, is getting because the females are being buffered against the external stresses. But at the same time, the more females there are in the group, uh, the um, worse their fertility is going. So you end up with these hump-shaped uh, fertility curves um, when you plot fertility against group size or against um, number of females in the group. turns out that the number of males in the group, contrary to what I spent 40 years trying to study, ironically, <laughs> the number of males in the group has absolutely zero effect. Um, I'm not sure if that's entirely true right the way through, but in general, they don't have an effect. I, there seems to be a tendency in um, uh, some species for females to exploit males as hired guns, basically, as, as protection. Um, uh, um, so you see this in gorillas. Uh, to some extent, you see it in species like gelada and possibly hemodryas baboons. But uh, <clears throat> predominantly, the males are just kind of as we believe to be the case in in primatology since the 1960s, early 70s, is the males are just freewheeling, operating around a honeypot, really. If females gather in a group, the males will map onto them. Um, you know, otherwise, they just kind of go wandering. Um, but the, the, the <clears throat> those effects, the mating effects, that you see then really are a spin-off of whatever the social structure or social organization actually is. And that depends on how many females there are in the group. But you run into this problem whereby um, the more females there are, the more they destabilize each other's um, menstrual endocrinology and risk ending up infertile. You even see this in humans. So polygamous households, are, are generally less fertile than than um, uh, uh, monogamous households does, within does that, a given culture. That's interesting. So it seems like females have this balance that they need to strike between the um, amount of protection and or resources that perhaps a partner or a group could give them with how many other females does being a part of that group expose me to? And yes. if you have too few resources or protection, you are at risk of predators. But if you have so many resources and protection that other women have gravitated toward that group, you are then suffering this endocrinology yes. fuckery that goes yeah. on. 
yes. So, so, and this is the trade-off essentially. It's the trade-off between survival in the face of particularly predation risks. So, you know, are you going to make it through uh, to adulthood? And you know, once you get to adulthood, are you going to be able to hang around long enough to reproduce yourself? Um, uh, on the one hand, and uh, on the other hand, the fertility, direct fertility costs that seem to arise from these these stresses. And I, and I hasten to say this is not, uh, in this particular case, the females going out and beating each other up necessarily. This is just uh, um, the fact that they are clustered, if you like, they're kind of clustered together in, in, in the center of the social world. Therefore, they're bumping up against each other much more. This does spill over in terms of human hunter-gatherers, though, because it turns out that uh, homicide rates, so the proportion of all deaths that are due to homicide, just increases linearly with the size of the living group in, in contemporary hunter-gatherers, um, to the point where a group of 50 is the sort of standard living group size, uh, camp group size, um, something in the order of 50% of all deaths are due to homicide. And these are not warring the consequences of fighting with your neighbors. A lot of this is, is internal um, fighting. Most of it, of course, is, is uh, you know, consequence of uh, badly behaved males. Um, and um, a fair share of the victims are women, uh, um, but not exclusively so. There's an awful lot of males get clobbered in the process. And this seems to be simply a consequence of the rising stress levels spilling out into, uh, as the tip of the iceberg, as it were, into um, outright violence that, that ends up very easily in humans with, with, uh, because of our weapons, as it were, uh, with, with the one party or the other uh, being killed. At 50% of mortality due to um, uh, homicide, this is not very good news for the group's ability to produce offspring to replace itself. And if you go much above that, I suspect you are very quickly into demographic negative territory. In other words, the group is shrinking rather than growing. Wow. Well, I think what probably happens is it oscillates around what seems to happen in primates is when they hit this upper limit of uh, of fertility uh, effect, the, what we call the infertility trap, um, what happens is the group oscillates a, around a sort of um, average value because it, it sort of uh, starts to, because it's not reproducing because it's too big, it loses members through death. And then that brings the, the group size down below the threshold uh, so fertility kicks up again and 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 the group starts to build up and it just keeps doing this until eventually it'll partition into two and you get get fish and you see that going on in primates all the time it seems to happen in human uh, groups as well though whether that's uh, uh, the same cause underpinning it is is not clear but but you see the same pattern in human small scale human groups um uh, the 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 problem for hunter-gatherers simply is that you cannot have all 150 members of the community, the wider community, living in the same place at the same time, um, because you would end up with, by the time you get to about 90 people, you 100% uh, of all your deaths would be due to homicide. At that point, you're, well, you're probably already gone extinct. 
crisis. Wow. Very, very serious. Stuff. How, so okay. what, you know, what we've, the, the surprise, if you like, is because we've always assumed that the reason hunter-gatherers live in these dispersed societies is for ecological reasons. It's a tough old life out there. You've got to, you know, you can't walk down to the nearest uh, supermarket and pick some stuff off the shelf. You've got to go around, you know, shooting animals, trapping ducks, you know, digging up some roots here and there, and it's hard work. Um, but the answer seems to be actually maybe not. The problem is just the stresses and tensions uh, have driven them apart, but they want to keep that community within bounds so that, you know, on, on the odd occasion when some serious uh, uh, predation event occurs or, 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 you know, or you're raided by some community from some tribe from elsewhere, um, you can get hold of them quickly enough to band together in what's effectively a kind of herd. And of course, that extends out through the community up to the level of the tribe, which is sort of usually somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 people who've distributed over a much wider area. But this flexibility seems to allow them to cope both with the kind of survival consequences of you know living in the natural world uh, on the one hand, but also managing the fertility problem. Now, the, in general, the way primates handle the fertility problem is what the females do is form alliances with each other. So they form these grooming clusters um, of two or three animals only, which just buffer them enough to defer the fertility, the negative fertility effect. That still kicks in eventually, um, uh, but it, but it, but it sort of allow it defers it enough to allow them to live in bigger groups. So you see, in, you look at how primate societies work, the species that live in ever bigger groups um, seem to have broken through glass ceilings. And there seem to be about three glass ceilings that they push through. At each step, they're introducing some new capacity in some way, uh, which allows them to hold down uh, well, both to keep the group coordinated and stop it disappearing in, uh, uh, over the horizon, or half the group disappearing over the horizon on the one hand, but also manages the stresses and conflicts within the group at the same time. And they seem, depending on how big the group is, they seem to kind of manage that in, in different ways. And the species that live in very big groups, um, by very big groups, on, we mean on average, only groups of about 50, which are what you see in chimpanzee communities and baboon, macaque type, um, so the smart social primates. Uh, what, what they exploit is these very high level cognitive skills, which are extremely expensive um, uh, computationally. So they require a lot of neural processing. So these are things like mentalizing, the ability to inhibit prepotent responses, which is basically not to let the red mist rise when somebody. Um, so there's two issues here, as I like to put it. You know, that in the sandpit of life, this is how you work at kindergarten. You know, you're all in the sandpit playing together, and and somebody walks past you and kicks sand in your eyes. Now the question is, did they do it deliberately, or was it an accident? Right? It makes a big difference how you respond. If they did it as an accident, what you need to be able to do is to say, it was an accident. I'm not going to, you know, clobber them or kick sand back in their face uh, 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 because it, it wasn't intended. Uh, if they did it deliberately, 
then you have a second step which says okay you know do i do i behave as the um sandpit bully and beat them up for kicking sand in my face or do i talk to them nicely and try and talk them around and and use the skills of diplomacy to avoid upsetting the stability of the social environment so if you know if you exert violence in response to uh, uh, uh somebody else annoying you then that tends to destabilize um the level of equanimity in the in the group at the community as a whole so it tends to cause people to want to to leave so if you want to keep them together you have to exercise these skills of diplomacy and these are very cognitively demanding because they they require this business this capacity to inhibit the red mist when it rises and go hang on no no calm down calm down take it easy <laughs> uh there that requires in turn mentalizing abilities because you have to be able to figure out you know what were they trying to do you know were they trying to uh annoy me or or was it all an accident or what how many times have and they done this before did i see them do it to my friend yes, yesterday yes, yes yeah and and one of the thing then what becomes very important in primate is a whole bunch of kind of high level but not quite so high level as the other two cognition skills which are generally wrapped in as a general thing known as executive function skills so these are causal reasoning analogical reasoning things like that and one thing that primates do which nobody else can do uh, it's unique to the the anthropoid primates and depends principally on a bit of the brain that doesn't exist in anybody else's brain is one trial learning they're extremely good at inferring rules general rules from one observation because they mm. yeah everybody else is doing association learning which means they've got to see it happen lots and lots of times and then they go oh yeah that's that's happened oh uh, because, 15 times out of the last 20 occasions yeah but because they have the capacity for more mental processing they are able to extrapolate out from a yes. single event yes. more effectively okay so the the, yes. the thing that i'm finding interesting here we've got this you know Two million years ago, up until eight thousand years ago, period. We yep. then have this evolutionary mismatch big, come and the, smash us the in big the face. Transformation. How yes. is it the case, given all of the things that you've just said—the homicide rates, the fertility, messery, all of that? How yeah. so, first off, so, how do we get into agrarian society, and then secondly, how is someone living in an eight million person city like New York? Yep. Yep. With difficulty is the answer. <laughs> okay, okay. So the answer to the first one is what you see in the archaeological record. Around eight thousand years ago, the beginning of the Holocene, so after the last ice age, people started living in villages. Right up to then, they'd lived in these dispersed communities. From about eight thousand years ago, uh, they initially start living in in villages that are community size, so they're about sort of one to two hundred people. So it looks like the three bands that make up a community, hunter-gatherer community, have locked together and uh, um, uh, lived in, live in one space. And those very, very quickly grow uh, in size, going through <clears throat> town sizes of uh, uh, maybe a thousand people up through sort of uh, small cities, classic um, Neolithic cities of perhaps five thousand people, and you know, the Jerichos and the uh, so on uh, uh, of life, and then of course you know beyond that they very quickly become uh, king kingdoms and, and 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 nation states and and where we are now. Uh, <clears throat> there's two questions here. One is 
why did that happen? Uh, secondarily, why did it happen where it did? Because actually it happened across a band, a latitudinal band, right the way across the world at the same time. Um, and secondly, uh, how on earth did they do it? In other words, how on earth did they avoid killing each other? Just to be blunt. Um, the answer to the first question uh, is very interesting because it turns out that, well, Historical sociologists have thought for a long time this is a consequence of raiding, primarily, by by the folks in the next-door valley, as it were. Um, the question is, why would raiding happen at that point? The answer seems to be the population just exploded after the Ice Age. And the reason it exploded, or let me put, put it this way, what in retrospect we kind of realize now is it only exploded in this very narrow latitudinal band, what's known as the um, subtropical zone, which is a very narrow 12 degrees of latitude zone that lies above the tropics, uh, immediately above the tropics, and sort of buffers the temperate zones in the northern and southern hemisphere. So, you know, in Europe and, and Asia and America, North America, you know, most of those lie in the, the, the temperate zone, but um, just it sort of separating the tropics proper from from the temperate zones. This very narrow uh, band called the subtropical zone. Now, it turns out the subtrop subtropical zone has very interesting properties because of the way in which the growing season and pathogen densities correlate with latitude. It turns out to be in a kind of magic space where pathogen densities which decline. Pathogen densities are very high at the equator. It was famously described uh, 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 in terms of where it, where is it good to grow cocoa, West Africa? Why? Because it's hot, sweet, and sloppy. That was the uh, um, classic defini definition of good growing conditions. That's perfect conditions for um, for pathogens. So the kind of the closer you get to the equator, uh, the, the higher the pathogen loads you get. The pathogen loads die away um, rather fast. The further north and south you go uh, from the from from the equator, by the time you get to the top of the tropics and the northern side, at least, um, pathogen densities are about as low as they are further north in 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 Europe and Asia. Um, but growing season is still quite long, so you haven't got into the temperate zone where where you start to have proper winters. So you've got lots of growing conditions are perfect, and at that time after the last uh, retreat of the last ice age, the, that temperate zone across the old world uh, um, uh, in particular was absolutely rich. I mean, the Sahara was lush and green with big rivers and lakes in the middle of it and hippopotamuses and crocodiles having fun together and fishes and baboons and all sorts of stuff, which now uh, don't live anything closer than about a thousand miles to further further to the south because what happened so you have at this particular point in time you have this sudden burst of richness populations just explode and suddenly you've got a lot of people uh competing for sp space and resources and when that happens the easiest way to get hold of uh any kind of resources is is basically to steal it off your neighbors so the response was to try and live in in groups now that they have then to solve the, the stress problem. Um, but what's interesting is, is uh, just before I 
talk about that particular. What happened around four and a half thousand, well, 4,200 years ago, uh, there was a massive climate change event and um, the uh, Sahara dried up as, as as did, so you've got all the sort of Rajasthan deserts in India and, and so on and so forth, right away around the, around the globe, basically, in these uh, subtropical zones. And things got very nasty as a result of that because there was a lot of political turmoil that happened. Uh, but but the, uh, that encouraged them to kind of live in ever bigger bigger cities, I guess. But the, the big problem, I think, at this point, and we've always seen, again, the Neolithic as all oh, the time we invented agriculture, and obviously that's why we lived in villages, so that we could all sort of work on the land together. And the answer is, well, actually, nobody ever does that. You know, show me a culture anywhere around the world where everybody in the village cooperates to dig a patch. They all have their own patches. Right. Um, you know, it's not until you get into commercial scale uh, farming to feed empires, you know, Rome, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and burgeoning populations in Europe in the, in the medieval times that you start to get commercial side plantations where uh, you have lots of people working together or employed to work together um, uh, on farms. Prior to that and everywhere else in the world, even now, you know, sort of um, peasant farming is is done by the family. That's it. You don't necessarily need a big family, even. Uh, and what's more, um, it's become clear from the archaeology that uh, growing cereals was actually invented before people started living in in um, uh, villages. It, it predates uh, the first settlements by about a thousand years. Obviously, it's not very easy to, to, to have big farms if you have a nomadic way of life. But still, you know, it's possible to have some kind of temporary farming sort of effect, horticultural kind of effects. And that seems to be what they're doing. Now, the big problem they had was literally to how to avoid killing each other. And I think what they did was introduce a whole, in fact, we can show this with living, uh, the transition between living hunter-gatherers and living horticulturists living in slightly bigger groups of 100 to 200 people, um, they introduce social institutions which allow them to manage as a community, manage the stresses and particularly to manage um, uh, the, the kind of violence that tends to erupt among among young males. So what the kinds of things you can see, and these are brought in sequentially as they hit glass ceilings in, in terms of community size, things like men's clubs where they can kind of sit down. The, the, the classic one, which I always cite because I think it's just such a lovely example, is what the American Plains Indians done, so people like the Blackfoot and so on. Uh, um, normally they lived a, a dispersed hunter-gatherers life in, in small groups of 50 to 70. Then once a year they gathered together for the buffalo hunt, right? They got a thousand people crammed together in all their teepees, all those classic photographs of the 19th century. Uh, what they did uh, was have a whole lot of institutions which allowed them to manage uh, um, stresses, particularly any outbreak of violence within the community, one of which was to introduce a police force so they would take all the young men from one, all the men of fighting age, if you like, from one hunter-gatherer band and say, okay, this year you're the police force. Uh, you know, you're, you're responsible for going around and, and knocking a few heads together when necessary. But what they, the other thing they did when 
there was a bit of a brawl broke out perhaps between between two idiots is they would take them they'd have a special tp the peace tp they would sit them down the peace tp make them smoke a peace pipe together and all the other men are sitting around the outside edge of the tp and make them talk to each other <laughs> and sort out their problems in front of everybody else and then everybody comes out of it wow, I mean, that's, like the fact a, that, that's like a, a neolithic version of jerry springer or or counseling or uh, an intervention of some kind you have the yes. talking rock hold the talking yes. rock now it's my exactly. turn to have the talking rock yeah. yeah yeah so 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 those kind of things so those men's clubs you see them all over the place in these kinds of societies sort of post post hunter-gatherer societies you don't see them in hunter-gatherer societies uh, at least we've, I've never found an example of one. So, so just, just to interject the there, Robin, so what, what you're suggesting is that as the um, group sizes began to scale up, the only way that you could restrict this over 90 people, 100% of homicides, 100% of deaths yep. being due to homicide, is through a s rudimentary social institutions. Uh, yes. kind of legislation, oh, yes. yep. early legislation, yep. it, cultural technology yes, is probably more shame and guilt and, and accusation and stuff yes. like that. Yeah, it's it's pre-legislation. There's not a lot of kind of formal legislation. In other words, there's no judicial system. They tend to appear later. Right? They, they do come in, but they come in at much bigger group sizes. Uh, what you get in this kind of black hole period space, somewhere between living group sizes of 50 and living group sizes of about 400 is this series of things. So in, in addition to things like men's club, you get charismatic leaders. So these are, you know, people who have authority and power by virtue of their acknowledged skills, maybe as a hunter, maybe possibly as a warrior, maybe oh, a bit of prestige going just on because here. they're wise, you know, and they, they, they're perceived as, as, producing, you know, the wisdom of Solomon whenever there's a, a kind of disagreement. And, and then on top of that, there's things like feasting, uh, both feasting within the community itself, but feasting with neighboring communities in sort of big, you know, once in a while um, events, which build linkages across. And then also what you see is things like uh, marriage or marital arrangements. So you have um, uh, uh marital obligations which particularly young men have to do have to go and live and work for uh the bride's um family for for so long or the fact when, when when the couple get married they have to go and live with 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 the bride's family for a year or something those kind of things these kind of obligations i think what they're doing is creating a actually doing two things one is they're expanding the pool of potential mates which is what usually keeps young males contented. You get problems in all societies when there's a shortage of women, basically. And so if you expand the pool, if you're a very small group, the chances that everybody, every baby born, born one year were male by pure chance is quite high. You know, so you end up with a bunch of guys with, 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 no, with no prospect to, for marriage. That is an unhappy mix, right? So if you expand the size of the, the the grouping uh, to include the next door community, um, then then you uh, increase the possibility of, of of everybody finding a partner. But also, cunningly, what you do is you produce another bunch of people who have a vested interest 
in your marriage working, who can also bring pressure on you um, uh, to behave better. So there are all these kind of interesting little checks and balances. That, that seems to get you through in a series of steps, almost like glass ceilings, where new things are added into the mix, uh, up to about 400. 400, what's interesting, is judicial systems start kicking in. You start to have um, uh, formal laws, judges, uh, you know, police forces, and you have doctrinal religions. And what doctrinal religions are interesting for basically is, is two things. One is uh, some sort of moral high God wagging his, maybe her finger as the case may be, uh, in the, in this, in the spirit world as it were, whenever you disobey, uh, or whenever the mere mortals disobey and, and do things badly. This is not quite the same sense of moral high gods you get in the, what sometimes called the axial age religions, which appear sort of around about 3000 years ago, um, <clears throat> or so, um, uh, which are often monotheistic. The, these are much more like tribal gods, but but they're imposing a discipline from above, making people stick to the kind of generic um, uh, codes of good behavior as much as anything. But at the same time, what religion does through its rituals is create this sense of commitment and belonging, which so you've got to, Top up, top down, and a bottom up effect going on. You've got this, and, and bottom up effects in this context are always better, as we know well. You know, you can have the most draconian police force in the world, and the most, you know, um, uh, draconian judges, and the most draconian penalties for breaking the law, uh, but we still break the speed limit <laughs> because the chances of being caught are, you know, modestly. Um, uh, thin. So you've got a good chance of getting away with it. And, 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 and you know, you can make those kind of penalties for everyday laws like that as draconian as you like. People will just ignore them and get on with it and do what they intend to do. If you have that built into a, a, a kind of moral code which is sanctioned by a god or, or gods in some form, it puts it in a different plane. You're saying if a higher well, power is watching my speedometer. Yes. Now, that, the thing is, you know, when you're driving down Route 66 in your old jalopy, nobody can see what you're doing out there in the desert. Except right? for him. But there is somebody who's watching. Somebody's they watching your speedometer. So, okay. Right. I, I mean, this is fascinating. The fact that we have this um, kind of a little bit like an arms race between the externalities that come from group size. Yes and the technologies that then need to be developed. It's almost like the predator-prey ecology thing that you would Absolutely. see throughout evolution. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm still struggling to understand why these bigger groups came together at all. If what you're saying is that individual families were the ones that were farming, I at, at this stage, I don't know why they have decided to pull together into yeah. 400 and 1,000 yeah. person groups. This, this is almost always to do with protection from raiding, it seems. Uh, the, the farming bit is simply the way of provisioning. You know, if, you, if you've got 500 people, 1,000 people living together, you very quickly exhaust the natural resources of the kind used by hunter-gatherers in your immediate area. So if, if, if you're going to uh, feed yourself in the way 
we've always done as hunter-gatherers, it means you're just being pushed to go further and further and further out. Mm. Uh, you know, and it, at some point it just becomes impossible and the whole system will collapse in starvation, in effect. Um, <clears throat> farming solved that for us. So it allowed us to live in villages because we could kind of do all that food production close by. Without but having the real to continually cycle yeah. along. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. I mean, in the end, of course, you know, you exhaust the land if you overuse it, uh, but that takes smart much cultivation longer. and cycling of crops and yeah. so on and so forth. All those clever things can come in that, that mitigate that a bit, but there's nothing you can do. You know, if you go killing antelope and, and uh, you know, sort of eating, cutting down fruit trees for, 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 for firewood and all that sort of thing that we, we insist on doing. Um, uh, in, in a way, a hunter-gatherer might. You very quickly empty the land around you, and that that the sort of circle expands further and further out. Whereas, obviously, you know, you can grow food um, uh, like cereals and the like on relatively small pieces of land, and you can keep doing it year after year on the same bit of land. Eventually, you might have to lift the entire village and move somewhere else, but that's a thousand years down the road. You know, we can. Let somebody else worry about that. The next generation can deal with it. The, you know, farming works fine. You know, uh, for for a generation, with it rarely causes many problems in that sense. When you start a new, uh, clear new land and, and start farming, um, so so the the agriculture bit, which isn't very complicated at the end of the day, and as I say, it, it the archaeologists now agree. I think that um, you know people started doing simple agriculture well before they started living in villages but you know it, it's an easy solution to the food problem the re i think the real big problem uh they struggled with was how to keep the lid on the stresses uh of having people in compact areas and it, and it really looks like you had this explosion in population and this is why it only happened in this zone it didn't happen anywhere else because the population sizes or at least the conditions for population growth weren't anything like as bounteous as they were in in the northern subtropical zone. It didn't happen in the sub, southern uh, subtropical zone, um, partly because there isn't so much land down there, and also partly because the land is much more uh, desert-like right the way around the world. Because the rain shadow of the Andes uh, on the Argentinian plains there and so on and the South African high veld. These areas have always probably been like that, uh, and it's sort of grassland basically and not very productive. So so you, you never seem to have had this transition from hunter-gathering into to agriculture and settlements down there that you had in the north. And, and it is still the case that, that all the uh, folk who lived down there historically and, and sort of still to some extent survived down there predominantly are, at least until very recent uh, historical um, times, uh, were all hunter-gatherers. You know, there were there were no serious settlements until, until let's say, five hundred years ago, something like that, when ag essentially agriculture was brought down uh, from 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 the northern hemisphere. So um, <clears throat> uh, you have these rather peculiar and special conditions in in the north north northern subtropical zone, which sort of kicked off this population explosion, triggered this sort of retreat into um, uh, defensible positions. That's why a lot of these places are built on 
uh, you know, sort of natural uh, hilltops and, and the like. Think of the Iron Age forts in, 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 in uh, Europe, Northern Europe. Uh, but you see this response all the time historically. I mean, it's a well-documented response. We look at the uh, American Indian populations in the Southwest in their response both to each other, as you had the kind of um, uh, uh, Nadene-speaking peoples coming down, intruding down into into the area of these these original tribes, um, uh, but also the Spanish later coming up uh, from Mexico. Uh, their response was. Always, when things get tough, they retreated from their nice, rich riverside um, uh, villages and went off onto the top of mesas, uh, which were much, much um, uh, uh, more defendable. And you see exactly the same thing happening in West Africa in the 18th and 19th centuries in response to slaving by Arab and African slaving expeditions, which were fueling the transatlantic trade. The, the the target populations would retreat from their nice flat valley bottoms um, up into the hills because it just made it much more difficult for, for, for raiding parties, particularly horse-borne raiding parties, uh, to move around up there. Much more defensible. You see it um, in uh, the 19th century, early 19th century in, in uh, Zambia, um, where a lot of the, the the Chewa, for example, who spread out into Malawi in response to slave raiding by the Zuni um, uh, uh, um, uh, impis coming up from 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 uh, further south in 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 South Africa, in the, around the Taal and places, uh, <clears throat> uh, the Zulu uh, um, uh, raiding parties after the big Zulu civil war in the in the eighteen thirties, they were forced to retreat, or they opted to retreat again up in, in into the mountains from their nice valley bottoms. And it was only once slavery uh, and these um, slaving expeditions uh, in these particular cases were uh, stopped uh, as a result of um, European uh, colonization of these interior places that people went back down again. You know, once once the threat had been removed, they kind of went, yippee, <laughs> it's a bit grim up here <laughs> in the clouds, and back down they go. So there's this is a kind of natural response by, by humans, really, to clump together and find defendable positions to live in. Why? Two questions. First one, how did women mitigate the messing up of their fertility cycle? Given that they're now, we're now talking about four hundred thousand person groups living together. Is it simply that when you have a house and there's a little bit of land in between you and the people around you that you manage to buffer that impact? And then, secondly, is it simply a case of continuing to scale what you've suggested there, which is you increase the group size, you increase some cultural technologies and some social institutions to deal with it? Is it a straight line from? 400 people in the Neolithic period to Manhattan in 2023? Uh, basically, I think so. I, I, my view has come round to be all this stuff uh, uh, can be explained basically as a consequence of demography and the stresses that demography, the costs and the benefits introduced by, by, by demography, essentially. Um, the, the issue of female fertility in these contexts are very interesting uh, as to how they've managed it. I think a lot of it has been 
the imposition of external um, uh, control, if you like, at, at a societal level. So, you know, the, there are laws, um, um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of the Ten Commandments saying you can't do this and you can't do that and in different forms, combined with um, the imposition of some sort of judicial system so that, you know, sort of miscreants can be duly punished. And and uh, this this helps to, you know, it, it, you know, people do occasionally learn if they're punished <laughs> to behave better. Um, but also there's a sense in which it, you know, it's an example but pull les ultra, you know, for the others, you know, don't do this kind of behavior because you'll just get into trouble. So all those kind of things help in their little, in their little bit. Um, I, I think that, and you know, that clearly had, makes it possible for people to live in big groups because, and it's clear that, you know, when political control or judicial control, whatever you want to call it, is lost, as in times of civil war, the whole thing just falls apart and collapses very, very quickly. Uh, mayhem and, 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 you know, just, you don't have to look at Ukraine. Uh, um, you know, people just behave incredibly badly whenever, basically whenever they have the free hand. Mm. Um, uh, so, but, but that's the sort of big scale. I think there was still a lot of things going on beneath the surface, which, played a very strong role at the women's level in particular. Uh, one of them, and this is, I'm sure, very, very ancient, is this tendency for women to have a best friend forever, a BFF. Now, this is a kind of foreign territory for blokes, right? You don't really find them in blokes. I mean, if you ask a bloke, do you have a best friend? They'll go, yeah, Jimmy, you know, I have a pint of beer with Jimmy every, every every Friday night or something down the pub we meet up. And I've known him since we were at primary school. Uh, they tend to be actually very long lasting, those kind of friends and men's friends, much longer lasting than women's best friends forever, paradoxically. But they're very, very few and far between. And they're very substitutable because if Jimmy decides to go off to Thailand for the rest of his life, you know, Chris just shrugs his shoulder and goes, oh, it's great. We had a great time, but, you know, Pete will do. <laughs> you just substitute Jimmy with Pete. Okay. And everything is exactly as it was before. That doesn't happen with women's best friends forever. They're very, and this is a reflection of the fact that women's, if you look at all the literature on friendship and all the work we've done on friendship, women have these very focused, personalized friendships culminating in the best friend forever phenomenon. Very, very tight. What we used to call platonic friendships because they're, they're rather like romantic relationships in their intensity, but they don't have the sexual element to them. Right. Um, uh, those, those kind of friendships, however, they are brittle, um, like romantic relationships. They're, they're built on trust and you can tolerate a lot of, um, small, um, breakdowns of trust. You forgive them and forgive them, forgive them, but eventually you've had enough and everything terminates catastrophically and oh, you never it, speak to each other again. Does the amount of intensity cause a degree of pressure that's sometimes difficult to keep up with? That's possible, but I think these relationships are, are hugely <clears throat> supporting, as it were, in providing a kind of, both in keeping the pressure, because the way these these grooming coalitions work in monkeys and apes, you know, is they're not 
kind of um, attacking uh, um, alliances in which, uh, you know, um, does happen from time to time. But by and large, you know, it's, it's not built around your friends sort of leaping in with their swords and, and, uh, and shield flying everywhere uh, because you've got attacked by somebody else. The way it works is passive defense. It just keeps everybody off your back and reduces the pressure from you, even within a large social group. Right, so that that seems to be, in effect, what what these best friends forever are doing, and they, of course they're providing lots of things like emotional support and support during uh, 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 childbirth, uh, and and in particular, um, the the long uh, rearing period that that humans have. You know, also, I, mean, that, I, I would guess protection from gossip, uh, retributive gossip against yeah, gossipers that sure. are pointing stuff yeah. in your direction. Yeah. Yes, it, that's right. It, I mean, these are all things which just allow you to dampen down these kind of things. So it's not about excluding, you know, solving the problem completely. It's just about getting the pressure down low enough that it doesn't rub off too heavily on you and trigger any of these kind of uh, infertility effects. Um, you know, whereas uh, what I was described, the difference between men's and women's friendships is is for for a woman. It matters who you are, not what you are, i.e. what you do, right? For blokes, the first question blokes usually ask each other is, what do you do? <laughs> and the question is because it matters what you are, not who you are. Who you are is completely substitutable. What you're looking at is a club. Um, and you see this on, on Facebook. If, if, there's, if there's two people in the photograph, the profile photograph, that's the po profile photograph, what you'll see is uh, for, if, if it's a girl's page, it's either, uh, if it isn't me and my mum or me and my baby, if, if they're the same age, it's my romantic partner or it's my best friend forever, right? And typically they won't have many, it's very rare for them to have more than two people in, in, the, in the photograph if they have any at all other than themselves. If there's three, four, or five people in the photograph, it is always the blokes page. And they're always activity-based. You know, it's five blokes sitting in the five-a-side football goal mouth, sorry, soccer goal mouth, from, from the amateur Saturday evening, Friday evening uh, games, games we play. Uh, or it's five of us sitting on top of the mountain at Machu Picchu, you know, or it's five of us in our canoes on, 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 uh, on, the, on, on Lake Superior or, or whatever it is you do. It's always activity based. So the, the definition of a club is very casual, right? It can be as casual as, uh, can you get a glass of beer from the table to your mouth without spilling it? If you can, that's, uh, makes you a member of the club. And therefore, anybody that can do that can substitute. The club is small. It's four or five guys. You can't have more than that. It doesn't work. But as I say, you know, if Jimmy decides to go off traveling to Thailand, it's too bad. There's a spare slot. You know, Pete is just shoehorned into it, and he goes into exactly the same position occupied by Jimmy, and everybody treats him as though he was Jimmy. It's weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, you're Jimmy now. Um, what 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 are the other interesting differences 
between male and female friendships, how they relate, how they bond, why they make up and break up, and what okay. can predict their friendships. So, so the key difference really then is, is spun off this, uh, or, or perhaps made better way of putting it is that it actually underpins it. And that is in the way that uh, um, the dynamics of the relationship, the way it's built up and maintained. With women, that is always conversation-based because they're always focused on engaging in a kind of discussions of, of emotional content and relationships and the social world on a one-to-one -one kind of basis. Uh, and what keeps women's friendships going is the frequency with which they can do that. So if they move apart, whether the friendship survives or not into the future depends on how much effort they put into trying to have conversations with it. It might be on the phone, it might be on Zoom, uh, or, or you know, if they can't manage face-to-face -face with it. The amount of time devoted to conversation has zero effect on men's friendships, and I mean zero. It doesn't affect whether it dies or uh, uh, increases. Um, and that's because their friendships, their social world is built around activities, doing stuff together. Right, so my kind of iconic example of boys bonding is there used to be a lovely picture of, of two old Greek men sitting in the sunshine outside a taverna, uh, either side of a table. And, and, and every so often they would pick up their uh, ouzo uh, and, uh, or their coffee and, or, or whatever and, and, and take a sip and put it down. But they never said anything. This is boys bonding. Uh, conversation is absolutely unnecessary. I mean, you have to kind of talk to people to get things going. But actually, you know, once it's going, it, it, what's really important is is doing stuff together. And, and conversation then becomes much, much less important. Um, so that dynamic then kind of bears into the size of that inner core of of friends, as it were. I mean, you know, so whether you have a uh, this best friend phenomenon or not, or whether you just have this this five layer of kind of uh, <clears throat> best friends. And women will have a five layer. It's just that it's it's a, a kind of hub and spoke kind of uh, um, structure in which the relationships are between uh, pairs of individuals. Where whereas the boys uh, five will be kind of much more. Um, uh, no, I wouldn't I hesitate to say the word interconnected, but it, it's kind of much lower level and more diffuse in its structure so that it's much uh, uh, better interconnected in a network sense. And I think that's why um, their friendships are probably less prone to uh, catastrophic failure than women seem to be. Um, women's friendships, as I said, have this fragile sort of characteristic to them that they can suddenly just collapse and break because somebody has done something. Whereas what tends to happen with boys' relationships is they just drift apart because they just stop bothering to see each other. Mm. So, okay, you know, they might take a swing at each other if one gets really annoyed. Um, but usually what happens if um, they take a swing at each other is they just, just go and have a beer afterwards and everything. Nobody says anything. That, having a swing at ever... each other doesn't predicate the friendship continue. It, it could no, actually be the beginning of a great friendship. So yes. I, I understand. And what, I... What's interesting in this context is 
boys will never talk about why they had a fight. You know, once it's dealt with, right, and they've had a drink together, it's kind of never mentioned, unless it's mentioned as a as a laugh. You know, oh, do you remember that? Time, interesting. You whereas, whereas for women, whereas it, the bitterness and resentment may linger. Yeah. Gone. Yeah, they're, they're much more concerned to go and I want to talk it through with you. You know, why do you do this? And so my this is my observation. I'm kind of putting two and two together, but I'm very conscious of the fact in this kind of restorative justice sense where they, you know, the police will offer you this opportunity to go and talk to the prisoner uh, who, you know, robbed you blind and broke into your house and robbed you blind or beat you up in the street and, and stole your purse off you. It's, I'd be interested to know what the, the uh, p- uh, actual percentages are, but my sense is it's always women that want to do that. Uh, the guys would want to be shoulders and go, yeah, I did not for? talk to him or throw throw them in an octagon together and, just, with, for, for five yes, minutes. Exactly. So I can understand, <laughs> I can understand why it would be that women would have this um, predisposition toward the hub and spoke model, especially with allo parenting, especially with yeah. uh, increased physical risk. Uh, higher tolerance for pain, all of these, uh, lower tolerance for pain or uh, higher sensitivity to pain. What is the adaptive reason for why men can have these slightly lower level, a little bit more diffuse, slightly more interconnected cloud style relationships and friendships as opposed to the hub and spoke model? I I think largely it has, I I don't know. I think the answer is we really don't know. I mean, this, this clubbishness in male relationships is, kind of very conspicuous in, in the ethnographic literature generally because you have these age groups phenomena and you have very specific puberty rituals for the boys uh, where they go through a group ceremony and those groups establish a cohort of similar aged kids who are bonded for life. You know, those, those age group uh, um, groups are often more important to to the young men and, and even older men than their family relationships. They, and that's partly because a lot of these ceremonies, extremely painful, circumcision, frightening, take them out into the dark, uh, uh, into the woods in the dark night and do scary stuff with them. They're, because uh, they're teenagers, you know, but it really bonds them very tightly together. And I, I, my sense is they're kind of setting up the communities, if you like, setting up the defense force for the for the village you know somebody's got to do it you need some guys who will go out there and stand together and not abandon each other the moment somebody raises a a club in their direction from from outside as it were raiders um and are willing to uh you know stand shoulder to shoulder uh, 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 with the other guys in, in defending the interests of the village that's my guess but i don't think we really have a good answer to that. It seems a plausible answer to me, but it, it's and a lot of other people have suggested much the same. Um, the the and I think for that, you know, you have to have this this intensity with a group. It does. It's not going to work if it's a one on one kind of uh, relationship. It has to be a generic sort of, you know, do you belong to my club? If you belong to my club. I don't even need to know your name, but you must be, you must be okay. I stand with you. Mm, <laughs> it's it's that, I, that kind of, kind of. I, I always had it in my head around the reason that men were uh, prepared to let their friends drift away uh, and sometimes come back, but sometimes not 
would have been to do with perhaps big game hunting and the risks of warfare, that if there is an attack, Pete might not come back. It might be not be that Pete's gone to Thailand. Right. It might be that Pete's being gored by some yeah. warthog. Yep. And if that's the case, okay, I, I can be sad about Pete, but I can't be sad about Pete forever. Whereas right. I'm going to guess ancestrally that homicide and deaths of, of the kind, accidental hunting deaths and stuff like that would have been rarer to yep. women, which would have made the cycle, yes, yes. the yeah. turnover of their yeah. friend group less. Yeah. yeah. Uh, absolutely so and and there are all sorts of interesting examples of that so um you know one of the interesting examples of that is eskimos at, at high latitudes especially um because life is very risky out on the ice so the women do not go hunting <laughs> because it's just far too dangerous and and the mortality rate historically was so high that a woman, a woman basically needed two husbands to see herself through through her life because, yeah, you know, in those kind of environments, you have to have somebody bringing the food in because the stuff you can't grow anything, or at least not through the winter. Um, and so you had to have a member of the household who could go and do that. And on the other hand, it you could not afford uh, for women to do that because the mortality rate was so great. Uh, that it would have just left a bunch of kids completely orphaned. So the way they seem to have worked it out is to, um, uh, um, you know, have that as, as definitely male only, uh, only job. And I guess it's somewhat similar with, with deep sea fishing in the Pacific Islands as well. It's only men that did that. Women did inshore fishing, but not deep sea fishing. Um, and also it seems that the Eskimos adjusted the sex ratio to ensure that a woman had available enough men to have two husbands. Um, so was that polyandry amongst those Eskimos? No, no, it was female infanticide, it seems. Oh, that's so, so much they're more grim. Just, <laughs> yes, so much so more they're grim. just. But remember, you know, you're living on the edge of survival up there. You know, you, yeah. you, you know yeah. it seems grim to us. But when your choice is you do some things which may or may not be palatable, even to you, at the time, nonetheless, uh, if, you know, it, it's the difference between survive, surviving and not surviving. It, 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 the whole thing can just fall apart so easily under those sort of environmental conditions. So they're very, very exceptional in that sense, I, I, I think, yes. But they're you know, sort of a nice example of how humans can adjust their behavior and social strategies and even, in some sense, their psychology, how they see the world. Mm, yeah, that's what um, I was thinking. Uh, in order to do that, because and it, and you know, the, the way it was done is, is interestingly complicated to take the pressure off the parents as well. Um, but, but going back to the, the way the women uh, try to manage the stress effects, I think one of the other factors that's, and I, I, I'm kind of um, really only come round to this idea quite relatively recently, so it's not terribly well thought through, but it struck me that uh, <clears throat> some of the species of primates that live in very large dispersed communities have this kind of harem-based structure, which is very much like what you see in hunter-gatherers. So you, you, you have a male with just a couple, usually in that, that case, two or three females, not too many, um, uh, uh, which forming these small family groups. And it, what it looks like to me 
is the women using males as hired guns. Right, so you get this hired gun effect. I mean, this is an idea that, that goes back to, to uh, um, uh, Margot Wilson uh, and a few other uh, women ethologists who came up with the idea back in the, in the 80s and argued that you actually see this on the streets of big cities, women using men as essentially a hired gun and conditions where they're exposed to uh, high levels of harassment and, and, and threat. So in a context where you have large numbers of males kicking around in the community, you know, the, the sensible idea is to attach yourself to a male who then provides you uh, with, with protection, just keeps, you know, the idiots away from you, basically. Um, they don't necessarily have to go out and, 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 and uh, engage in fisticuffs, though presumably uh, if push comes to shove, it's better to have somebody who's handy with their fists, <laughs> somebody who's not. Um, but, you know, if, if, if that's actually, that would explain why we have two things uh, that are kind of peculiar about humans. One is why we have these unusually have these living these very large groups with lots of males and females around and have these uh, kind of pair bonded relationships. I use the word pair bonded here rather than monogamous because you pair bonded can be polygamous. You know, pair bonds in polygamy, obviously. Um, uh, and um, uh, the, the, the idea that they're actually using the males as a, a form of protection then um, <clears throat> uh, would explain why you get this system. And it also would explain something that's slightly peculiar about human mate choice, and that is it seems to be driven predominantly by the women. Right? So um, <clears throat> we have some very nice telephone data, so it's huge samples, this is all the telephone uh, conversations in a year that take place in a single provider from a large European country. So we're talking about six billion phone calls, very, very large sample. And if you look at them cross-sectionally across age, it's as clear as a bell. The girls start, so we, we don't know what happens before the age of 18 because that's the sort of minimum cutoff. You can't look at stuff before the age of 18 unless you have you know, go through big hoops in, in ethics things. Uh, so from age 18, you see women starting to focus on phoning a boy of about their own age, more and more increasingly. It takes the guys about the better part of five to seven years to start doing the same. What I think is going on here, and there's, there's other evidence which, which points to this same thing. The girls are making a choice very, very early on who they want to go for. And then they go constantly battering on his door, you know, whether it's phoning or just being in the right place at the right time or whatever, um, uh, until eventually even the most stupid guy wakes up and goes, oh, goodness, <laughs> well, all right then. Uh, how would you, uh, you know, um, how would you how would you square that yeah, circle the with wedding the male... bells then ring <laughs> yeah how would you square that circle with the male over perception bias of attraction meaning that men on average seem to presume that the woman that they're speaking to even if it is in yes. incredibly platonic yeah. is more into him than she actually is yes. why would the man yes. have not cottoned on earlier than five to seven years um um 
I, I think, well, there, there are several reasons. That's an interesting question. Um, but I don't know if anybody, so what we have here, if you like, is two different bits of observation, which don't look as though they, they add up, but nobody's actually ever bothered to put them together so far. Partly because I don't think they've kind of, you know, people tend to look at one problem at a time. They look at one side of the, the, the one side of the coin without looking at the other at the same time. So, you know, it would be nice if people who do courtship studies of this kind and make choice preferences actually tried looking at both together. It might give us, a, my guess is that men are just much more casual about these things, right? That does, you know, I suppose you might argue, well, it's because they're not pair body, but my sense is, that if you look at any relationship, if you just look at pictures of happily married couples or pictures of uh, couples in romantic relationships and just look at the eyes, the girl is always looking at the bloke and the bloke is looking into the distance somewhere <laughs> over. It's just <laughs> surreal. You couldn't make it up, right? So I think what happens is girls have this predisposition to lock onto once they made their mind up, right? Everybody wants to marry Mr. Darcy. They've got a picture of who the perfect uh, um, uh, partner is going to be, and then they just go for it. And and you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But some, the point is, at the end of the day, somebody has to get the thing off the ground. Right? Otherwise, nothing will happen. You know, they'll just sit on opposite sides of the dance floor and uh, and ignore each other. Uh, so somebody has to get up and make make a move, and, and it seems like the girls do it. And, and my sense is that's because they're one of the outcomes that they're looking for is being able to have what's effectively a hired gun, just like Margaret Watson uh, um, suggested. Um, <clears throat> uh, 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 be and that's because they're making much more complex decisions. To the boys, if you look at any of the literature on mate choice strategies, which we did a lot of work on using personal ads a long time ago. M men make very simple decisions. It's basically uh, indices of fertility, so attractiveness and age, and, and really they're just not interested in anything beyond that. Uh, women are much more demanding in what they specify they're interested in. And as a result, they also say very little about themselves other than their age and that, that they're attractive. So they know that that's the only thing. You've got to optimize for your market. You've got to know the market. Yes, it, absolutely. It is, it is unbelievably accurate that the two sexes' understanding of what the other sex is looking for in the mating market. And they, you know, adjust their behaviors, but in what terms of what they have to offer. But what they look, what they offer about themselves uh, 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 sorry, what they look, look for, um, women tend to be much, much more demanding than males. And I think it's because they're trying to balance many more different things in the system because obviously kind of from a biological point of view, uh, 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 this whole business is about reproduction ultimately. So, you know, reproduction isn't just producing babies. It's all that follows beyond that in terms of being able to rear them to adulthood and so on. So I think, you know, the, the, it doesn't surprise me, put it this way, that it's, that women should make an early and very clear decision. They're having to make a kind of best of a bad job, uh, choice because nobody, uh, satisfies all the boxes. Uh, so you kind of 
do the best you can, you know, and, and you know, it's a, it's a frequency dependent thing. There is only one Mr. Darcy in the village, right? And only one person is going to get them. So, you know, if, if Jemima gets him, you have to settle for the curate. Fine. But at least you, that's your number two choice. So, you, you know, it ticks enough boxes uh, uh, to satisfy your, your, your requirements. So you've got these very complex decisions going, which, but it, it means they kind of seem to make a much more focused and, and decisive and early decision on whether to go uh, or, or who to choose. And, and the blokes kind of just fall in line, really. um, I'm sorry to say. What are you working on next? So for me to try and track the not only the frequency of books that you put out, which is terrifying, uh, but also it, it seems, I can't think of a better word, it seems meandering in a nice way. We've got we've we've had religion, we've had friendships, we've had uh, the social brain, which kind of applies friendships and, and group health to the business world. Uh, we've had stuff to do with sex and attraction. What's next? What, what can people expect from you next? <laughs> well, actually, I'm still trying to so sort out what's going on in primate social systems and their evolution. But I think we now have a coherent full story. So the next book is to try and put that all together in one place because a lot of this literature is very scattered in, in journals all over the place. And I think one of the problems is people uh, don't see the big picture. So it's sort of become incumbent on me, I think, to try and bring this all together, present the whole story and show the evidence for it. And then the follow-up book is uh, applying that to humans, really. So it's really doing the Friends book with the data, uh, not the whole of the Friends book, but the essence of how we create communities out of uh, essentially friendships, how, how friendships scale up to create communities and why we created basically what we've been talking about uh, but this time providing the actual evidence in this that's next book. then once i've done that uh, i think i'm exhausted uh, of, of doing this kind of stuff and i'm going to do uh, a history book which then applies all this stuff to historical uh, um, phenomena <laughs> you're a monster you're an absolute beast i, no, I just a, have fun i just have fun a, no, right, you don't understand, Robert. There is a group of my friends who are at, at Cambridge, who are over here at UT, and every time that you release a new book or that someone spots that a new book comes out, it gets posted in one of our group chats saying, fucking Dunbar's written another book again, and I, I still haven't finished the proposal for mine. So, I, look, I, I absolutely adore all of the work that you do. I really, really appreciate your time today. Uh, I can't wait to see what you do next, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, having the next discussion about whatever it is. Well, uh, it's a great pleasure always to chat to you because it's such fun. And um, thank you for having me yet again. Until your... next time. Thank you, mate. <laughs> Very good. All the best.